Let me, uh, let me remind you of something, if I may. We, about a month ago, uh, mentioned the fact that the Dukes, we just prayed for their little girl, Kate. Uh, they were in, uh, th this whole deal, they were going to have to come up with about 14000 out of pocket. And no, 10000 out of pocket. And what, what we did was, we asked guys just to say, hey, what can you do and what can we do to help them over the next 30 days? And, uh, and uh, basically, we got commitments for about 14000 So, um, and we said we'd try to do it within 30 days. And actually, that was last week, but we didn't meet. So if, uh, if you can take care of that tonight, that would be great. So just, just a, a reminder on that. You can see Lou or, uh, or Jim. There's a plate out there. Sure, that'd be great. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's it. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll pray for Kate, all right? Well, Father, we are encouraged by the good report on this little girl. Just a little wisp of a girl. From about 1.7 now to about 3.4, that's remarkable. And we pray that you will continue to sustain her and keep your hand on her and Guard her from uh, infection. Do for her, Lord, what the doctors can't do. We're grateful for them and their expertise. But we, uh, we pray that the, the great physician would step in here and sustain this little girl. We thank you, Lord, for meeting their needs uh, through this group. It's always such a thrill to be a part of something like that. We uh, come to you, Lord, tonight. We're living in uh, we're living in some times where there is a lot of uh, uncertainty. There is a lot of uh, concern. There is a lot of anxiety. Quite frankly, we thank you, Lord, that you are there. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you have a plan. We thank you, Lord, that you are in absolute control of the events. All over the world, you're in control of every leader. That gives us great uh, comfort. It gives us great security to know you. And to rest in you and to rest in your plan and purpose. We pray for our president tonight. We pray that you'd give him great wisdom. We pray that you would enable him to screen the counsel that he gets. We pray that he would be able to filter what is from you and uh, be able to... Uh, to reject what isn't from you as uh, he meets with you in the morning and, uh, and reads his Bible and prays. May you minister to him, give him a, a, a sure course, and give him the confidence that your hand is on him. We, we continue to pray for him. We ask tonight that you will remind us of what is true. We ask that you will give us a perspective from your word that will calibrate our lives with your word. We, we live in a world that's cockeyed. It's, it's out of kilter. It's always out of balance. Uh, it's never quite right. Yet when we come to you and we come to your book, we get calibrated. We, we get set straight. And, and we need that, Lord. We pray for the guys that are here tonight that are going through difficult times. They're going through deep waters. Uh, they, they've, they've had a significant disappointment this week. Remind them that you're with them. Remind them, Lord, that, uh, 
that those hard things come into our lives to refine us, that we never suffer randomly, that you're sovereign even over the disappointments in our lives and that you're the God who brings good ultimately out of those things. So, Lord, again, we ask tonight that you'd give us what we need. We don't even know what we need, uh, but you're the great provider. We'll trust you to supply it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in good old Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, um, Nehemiah is under a, uh, a level orange threat in Nehemiah 4. And let's go back there. We covered the first half of the chapter uh, two weeks ago. And I need to mention something to you guys before we forget it. We will not meet the next two Wednesday nights. Now, that comes from whoever set the calendar. Um, but... I'm just here to submit. So, so next two weeks, we're not here because it's spring break, and everybody's got different spring breaks. So we got two weeks, and then we'll pick it up again, all right? Just so you know. Um, now, Nehemiah 4. In, in, in Nehemiah 4, they are under a threat. And if you will particularly notice verse 7. Now, it came about when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs... The Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. Uh, Nehemiah went back to rebuild the walls, which had been broken down, which had been destroyed. This was part of the return of the Jews from exile. The Jews had been captured. Uh, Jerusalem had been captured and uh, uh, destroyed. The temple had been uh, destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years prior. This was a judgment of God on the nation of Israel for their disobedience for hundreds of years. So they were taken off to Babylon. Um, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the Persian king who himself conquered the Babylonians. Uh, they are in the process, the 70-year exile is up, and a remnant of the Jews are in the process of coming back to Jerusalem. The first wave came back under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Then they came back under Ezra, and Ezra established the law. And now, years later, Nehemiah is coming back to rebuild the walls. The walls were their security system. Uh, the walls and the gates of the city were broken down. The temple was vulnerable. This was a very practical measure. But there, when, when he began to do the work, and he'd had opposition up until now, but when they got the work halfway done, and when they got the wall halfway built to the level that it was going to be built, these guys really started getting upset. So we've read about their enemies here in verse 7. Verse 8 says, And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish or rubble. Uh, the, uh, think of the World Trade Center after 9-11, all of the rubble. Now there wasn't that much rubble there because there weren't two towers of 100 stories. But there was a lot of broken down stuff uh, that was still remaining from what had happened 70 years prior. These guys were getting demoralized. It says, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. They were losing heart. And our enemies said, 
they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So there really is a threat here. These guys are serious about stopping these Jews. And it came about when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times. You hear something ten times, it's negative, it's going to get you down. They will come up against from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. So this, this is serious stuff here. I mean, they I mean, they got the duct tape and the plastic out, besides their swords. Now, to them, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're living under this stuff and hearing about this stuff. This was as real to them as it is to us. Isn't it amazing how relevant the scriptures are? Verse 14, when I saw their fear, you guys see any fear around you at all? Is people concerned? Did the stock market go up 800 points today? Yeah. No. Why? What did it go up? 14 points or 70 or something? What's it going to do tomorrow? It's going to go down because it went up today. Why? Because of the underlying fear about what? War. That's what we're here here all day. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I got a question for you. Who is he addressing here when he tells them to fight? Uh, This isn't a loaded question. He says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He's speaking to the men who are building the wall. But he puts the responsibility for fighting the war primarily on the men. Let me give you a little principle here. Okay? Real men don't send women into combat. It's just a little principle I thought it'd zip in there. Okay? I said real men. I didn't say Clinton. Uh, we, 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 have, we, we live in a culture where we've gone nuts and we've lost our minds and we've lost common sense. Historically, uh, men fight for their families. Men step up. Men are the protectors. If I hear a noise at 3 in the morning, I say, Mary, go down and check that out. <laughs> That's not what I say. That's not what I say. I, I go check it out. You go check it out. Uh, now, if, you're, uh, uh, if you've just had a double bypass surgery, you may not be able to get out of bed to check it out. That's, that's an unusual circumstance. But you guys hear what I'm saying. You hear the common sense here, don't you? See, in our culture, we have lost that. Uh, God has called men to specific roles. One of them is to protect their family. One of them is to fight for their family. One of the most tragic things that I saw after 9-11 and, and in the ensuing troop buildup and all that, one, one of the most tragic things that I saw was um, a scene where um, a battalion was moving out and here was the wife taking a six-month-old child and handing it to her husband and she was heading off for Kuwait. I'm going to tell you something. There's something wrong with that picture. That is wrong. That is twisted. But it shows you how screwed up our culture is. See, that baby needs 
its mother. That guy can't nurse that baby. I don't care how uh, I don't care how, how liberated you are. You can't nurse that kid. I mean, I'm hoping you can. <laughs> but see, we've just lost all. We, you see how we're so out of kilter? You see how we're so out of bounds? And see, if you say something like that, you're, 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 you're a, uh, what do they call you? Yeah, that's exactly what you are. You're also, you're also a, a Bible-believing Christian who believes that God has given common sense to the world in his word. And God's given us a blueprint for how we are to live. Um, so if you stand up and say something like that, you're going to get ridiculed. And uh, you'll be called all kinds of things. But I'll tell you what, your wife will sure, sure love you. <laughs> and so will your kids, and they'll sure appreciate you. Because she's married to a man and not some kind of gelding. Okay? <laughs> all right. Hey, we're just trying to be subtle here, you know? All right. What do you really think about that? Well, hey, listen. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. But notice now how they're going to work. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, uh, does that say the shields or the smelts? Because I've got my Bible marked up. The spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were, who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. I mean, this was serious. They, they had no idea when terrorism was going to occur. They didn't have a clue when, they didn't have a clue where. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. And I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. So you see, uh, you, you see the... Uh, you see the status here. You see the, the alert. You see the concern. You see the, uh, you see the threat. That could come at any time. I have a question for you. Um, it, it's, it's pretty clear what they're doing. They're continuing the work. They're continuing on with their lives. But as they build, um, they have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher of the last century, uh, it's the 21st century now, isn't it? The great preacher of the two centuries ago, about 1860 to 1890 is what I'm trying to say. Spurgeon, yeah, 19th century. Spurgeon had a magazine, and in that magazine they published his sermons, and the name of the magazine was The Sword and Trowel. He got it from Nehemiah. Because they went about their work 
with a trowel, they were rebuilding the wall in one hand and with the sword in the other. Uh, they were positioned, uh, we saw previously in chapter 3, that they were positioned at different places at the wall doing their work. We read there's a trumpeter because an attack came, the trumpeter would run to the attack area and would blow the trumpet and they would all come and fight the good fight. I have a question for you. If Nehemiah had have known that Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites had nuclear weapons, if he had have known that they had biological weapons, would he have just stayed at the wall? Or would he have launched a preemptive strike? That's my question. Now, what do you think the answer is? You think he'd go? You look like a hawk to me. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, I want to deal with that issue tonight because uh, we're in a situation where we are, we are facing war. We're looking at it right in the face, and it could come any time. I think Tommy Franks is in D.C. today, isn't he? And tomorrow? Yeah. But he's heading back. He heads back. It'll be interesting to see how quickly they pull the trigger. Because uh, we all have the sense something's going to happen. Um, I, 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 I want us to look biblically tonight at, uh, at the whole concept of war. How should we feel about war? What should we learn from the scriptures about war? Because we are hearing... Um, a multitude of ideas and a multitude of thoughts. Uh, there, there is obviously strong opinion. Um, and I've been researching this for a couple of weeks. So I want to give you some thinking, biblically and theologically, on the whole issue of war. Interesting, isn't it, that in our study of Nehemiah, this is where they are. Uh, it, it, it is not unrelated to where we are. Very, very real, very, very relevant. Um, Charles Colson, in a Breakpoint article, recently wrote this. Uh, the issue of war is of particular concern to Christians since we are the heirs of the just war tradition that was formulated by Augustine 1,600 years ago. Historically, the doctrine, meaning the just war doctrine, the doctrine's requirement of just cause has been, has been defined as responding to an attack. And we're going to talk about Augustine here in just a minute. But Augustine was a guy that is one of the giants of Christian history. He's one of the guys who was a giant in terms of, uh, uh, of helping the church understand at a key place in its formulation. He, he was gifted by God to think clearly and to think biblically on issues that were difficult issues. Uh, historically, when you read church history, one of the things that you learn about church history is that basically um, that there is, there is nothing new under the sun, that there is no new heresy. Pretty much all the heresies that we see around us today showed up by five or six hundred years after um, uh, the uh, death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Uh, what you see today when you see 
Jehovah's Witnesses, well, all they are are uh, they're Arians. You want to know about Arians, you go back and read church history. Uh, you look at extreme Pentecostals, well, you go back and look at the Montanist issue in church history. There's nothing new. Uh, the church has been dealing with this stuff for years. Uh, certain men have been key men throughout the history of the church. Augustine was one. Uh, Luther was definitely one. Uh, Aquinas was another one who was wedged in between um, um, Augustine and Luther. But Augustine was the guy who came up with this whole concept of just war. Uh, is it ever right for a Christian to go to war? Because it, it seems that there were certain things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that apparently on the surface would say that we're not to go to war. Well, we're going to look at some of that tonight. Um, Colson goes on and he talks about a concept called, um, interesting concept, that's called anticipatory self-defense. Because you see, one of the things that Augustine said, and again, we'll get into Augustine here in just a minute, is that one of the things that Augustine said is that one of the bases of a just war is that you respond to an attack. But what if the attack hasn't occurred, but you're fairly certain that the attack will occur? Um, there, is a, a, there are several famous precedents for what is called anticipatory self-defense. Um, there was an issue where the British um, attacked across the Niagara uh, against an invasion of Irish revolutionaries up in Canada. Uh, Thomas More said this, a Christian thinker. Thomas More said, if any foreign prince takes up arms and prepares to invade their land, they immediately attack him in full force outside their own borders. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Colson goes on and says, Christians should remember that the just war doctrine is not grounded in revenge, punishment, or even justice. This is fascinating. Thomas Aquinas, who lived eight centuries after Augustine. Now catch this, this is wild. Thomas Aquinas discussed it in his Summa Theologica, his big heavy theological work. Not in the section on justice, but in the section on the love of God. In other words, when Aquinas dealt with the whole issue of war. He didn't deal with it under the attribute of the justice of God. He dealt with war under the attribute of the love of God. Does that surprise you? I would submit to you that what Nehemiah did in chapter 4, see, was it an act of war, what he did, or was it an act of love? It was both. Follow the thinking here, all right? I don't want you guys to go to sleep on me. Because this is wild stuff, okay? Because when you think war, would you equate war with the love of God? We think about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? You see? But is there a disconnect there with the love of God and going to war? There wasn't in the mind of Aquinas. Follow his reasoning. As Christian scholar Daryl Cole writes, the Christian who fails to use force to aid his neighbor when prudence dictates that force is the best way to render that aid is an uncharitable Christian. 
Hence, Christians who willingly and knowingly refuse to engage in a just war fail to show love towards their neighbor as well as towards God. Did you get that? So, if you see, if you, here's what happened to me when I was a freshman in high school. I'm, um, I'm, 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 I've been, I've been after class, playing basketball, doing something. I get my books out of my locker. There's nobody in the hallway. Nobody. I get my books. I, I walk down. I take a left. But there's a guy standing back behind the lockers, late 20s. And he looked, he looked like he shouldn't have been there. Nobody was around. I just, I just noted the guy, and I turned left and kept going. It's about 5 o'clock, 5.30. I walk down the long hallway. I walk out of the building. Um, as I'm walking out, high school girl is walking in. Uh, I open the door for her. She walks in, and I'm walking out to walk home. I walk. I'm walking down, I'd say I walk maybe 200 yards, and all of a sudden it hits me. She's walking straight down that corridor where that guy was. And I knew something was wrong. And I dropped my books, and I ran back as fast as I could. I couldn't get in, the door was locked. I ran around to the back of the building, and as I came around the back of the building, I saw him uh, with his hand around her mouth dragging her in to a closet behind that building. He was going to rape her. What would be the thing to do in that situation that would best express the love of God? I said, hey! I mean, he was probably a good 7,500 yards away from me. He couldn't see me. His back was to me. But I just, I just saw, and I just yelled. And he dropped her like a sack of potatoes, and he took off the other way. He didn't know I was a freshman in high school. See? I mean, I knew I was a freshman in high school, but he didn't know that. You see? He dropped that girl. He took off that way. The girl took off that way. And I went straight home, told my folks, and they got on the phone with the cops. Now, I just use that as an example because I remember it. What if I had have seen that guy pulling her in there and, and I had have said, you know, all you need is love? Da, 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 da. <laughs> or what if I had have gotten a, a, a banner and, you know, said no war? Would that have expressed the love of God? No. You see what these guys are saying here? We don't normally think along these lines, but you see, when you start thinking it through, it makes imminent sense. If you see someone being attacked, you express the love of God by going to their aid. If you don't go to their aid, that's a terrible thing. Anybody remember Kitty Genovese? Yeah. Way back in the late 60s, Kitty Genovese was stabbed to death like 38 times on a street in New York City. Uh, she screamed and screamed and screamed, and people opened their doors and looked out their windows, and what did they do? Shut the doors, locked the windows, and nobody went to her aid, and she was killed in cold blood on that street. 
in front of hundreds of people. Let's move on. Okay? You know, you know what's interesting about all this? You might encounter a situation this week where you need to step up to the plate. I mean, are, are you driving around looking for trouble? No. But you know, God, may, God might want to use you to keep evil from having its way. Um, let's talk more about this concept of anticipatory self-defense. Okay? Sure, Tavon, please. This past Sunday, there was a lady that left the church and went out in the parking lot to get in her car to go home. And her ex-boyfriend came over and started pushing her around and knocked her down. Nobody went to her aid. Finally, this one little woman went over there with her phone calling the police. And the police got there and arrested him. And I don't know how many people were in the parking lot, but apparently there were a number of people going to their cars, and nobody helped her mm. except this one little lady who had her phone and called the police. Mm. Our parking lot. Yeah. We need to be more alert than that. Yeah. I, I mean, it just. Yeah. Yeah. What we're about. yeah. Thanks, Taylor. You know, we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago being feminized men. That's where you got to step up to the plate. You say, well, I don't know what's going to happen. Ah, you're right, you don't know what's going to happen. But you know what's going to happen if you don't step up. Okay. All right. Now, let's, let's, um, I got to really watch my time here. Because I figure I got about eight months worth of stuff up here. <laughs> Back in, um, there was a guy named Hugo Grotius. He was one of the, um, he was one of the men who wrote the first great treatise on international law. Now, he lived in a time in the 1500s, and you see, when you're talking law back in the 1500s, the issue was, where did law come from? Uh, you, realize, you realize that our law has always come from somewhere. Um, you've heard it said, uh, sometimes people will be upset, and they'll say, you're just trying to legislate morality. Every law legislates somebody's morality. The question is, whose morality is going to be legislated? In the 1500s, they believed that law came from God. They believed that God gave the law to Moses on Sinai. He brought it down. It became, the Old Testament law became the basis of what we know as Judeo-Christian civilization. Um, if you were to read Blackstone's commentaries. If you went to law school in America, you would read Blackstone's commentaries. Blackstone would give the law, then he would give the scriptural basis for the law. Because law has to come from somewhere. So in the 1500s, uh, uh, Hugo Grotius, who was one of the first uh, writers on international law, wrote about anticipatory self-defense. Uh, after a British fleet attacked a Spanish ship, attacked Spanish ships in the harbors in 1587, the year before the Spanish Armada sailed for English waters. In other words, they knew the Spanish Armada was coming. They knew they were coming. They knew they were preparing. What did they do? They went and attacked them. 
1981, Israel attacks Iraq. Anybody remember this? Israel attacked Iraq because Iraq was building a nuclear reactor with help from the French. Our friends. Remember Normandy and D-Day and all, all our guys that died over there. Um, Professor uh, Louis Rene Beres and Colonel Yoash Sidon Chatow wrote this. Sixteen years ago, on June 7, 1981, obviously that dates the article, Israeli fighter bombers destroyed the Osirak nuclear reactor shortly before it was ready to go online. At the time, the general global community reaction was overwhelmingly hostile. What a surprise. Even the UN Security Council indicated that it strongly condemns the attack and that Iraq is entitled to appropriate redress for the destruction it has suffered. Um, he goes on and asks the question, did Israel act illegally at Osirak? Uh, he says, under the long-standing customary right known as anticipatory self-defense, every state is entitled to strike first when the danger posed is instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. He goes on and says, did Israel violate the laws of international law at Osirak? Fourteen, now catch this, 14 Israeli aircraft took part in the raid. Eight F-16 Falcons, each carrying 2,000-kilogram bombs, and six F-15 Eagles serving as escort planes. The reactor was completely destroyed without civilian casualties and before any radiation danger existed. Unlike Iraq's 39 Scud attacks on Israel during the Gulf War, which were expressly designed to harm innocent civilians, Israel's raid on Osirak was conceived for essential protection of civilians. We're talking major differences here, aren't we? You guys still with me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back to Augustine. This guy was a stud. <laughs> he really was. He really understood the Bible. He understood. Augustine, his mother, was a godly woman named Monica. And uh, I remember I had a test in seminary one time, and it was a pop quiz. And the, the question was... Um, the question was, uh, what was the name of Augustine's mother? And I, I knew it was the name of a beach in California. And I'm going, Santa Barbara. I'm going, Santa Cruz. I'm going, San Ysidro. I'm going, Santa Monica. I couldn't, anyway. I hate, I hate profs that do that. Anyway. One of the first things that Augustine did was that he went to Luke 3.14. Why don't you turn there with me? Okay? So wait a minute, I thought we were studying Nehemiah. Well, we are. But there's a concept that's called Scripture interprets Scripture. Luke chapter 3, verse 14, we read an account of John the Baptist, and interestingly enough, he encounters, uh, he encounters some soldiers. And, so, and some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Uh, he's talking about the importance. If you look at verse 8, he says, therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. He's talking about uh, a heart change in following God and being a part of the kingdom of God. 
So he addresses the, uh, the leaders, the religious leaders of the nation. He uh, addresses the tax gatherers in verse 12. They say, teachers, what shall we do? He tells them, don't collect any more than what you have been ordered to do. And some, question, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, quit the military. And those were Roman soldiers under Caesar. He didn't tell them to quit. He didn't say war is, is part of your task. War is a terrible thing. You want to follow Christ? You don't go to war. He didn't say that. Uh, isn't that, isn't that interesting? He told them sp some specific things to do as soldiers, but he did not condemn them uh, for being in the military. Um, in other words, by what John said, military life is therefore in itself perfectly legitimate. Uh, if the military as a cause is legitimate, so also is the military's end to wage war. I'm quoting from a guy named Luis Sergio Solomeo. You were probably reading him last night. But that's all, that all comes from Augustine. Where did Augustine get this concept of a just war? Well, that's one of the places that he got it. All right, let's, let's, move, on. let's, let's move on down. According to Augustine, just war must seek to obtain or restore peace. And in this sense, it is an instrument of peace. By peace, he understands the tranquility of order, the right disposition of things according to their proper end. Augustine also defines just war as a means to reestablish and vindicate violated justice and thus obtain peace. Therefore, one can wage war to punish a nation for the violations of just order. God did that in the Old Testament. Um, here's a summary. In other words, according to Augustine, just war can be waged when recovering goods or legitimate situations or when restoring order and justice uh, that violated a people. Now, let's jump to Aquinas. Am I boring you guys? Okay. Let's jump to Aquinas, okay? Eight centuries later. Uh, Aquinas basically built on what Augustine said. Um, he came up with three things for a just war. Number one. Uh, just war must be declared by a legitimate authority. In Romans 13, Romans 13 is a key verse. In Romans 13, verse 4, let's turn over there. Romans 13, here's what Paul says. You say, oh, this is Paul. That's exactly right. And you need to understand something. When Paul speaks, Jesus speaks. And a lot of people today say, well, that's just Paul. He doesn't count. No, he counts. Because Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, some Bibles, in some Bibles, they have the words of Christ in red. Right? You seen that? And let me tell you something. This whole thing ought to be in red. Because it's all the word of Christ. Every single word, every jot and tittle. Whether it's Ezekiel, where does Ezekiel get his stuff? He got it from Christ. It's the word of Christ. Where did Daniel get his stuff? He got it from Christ. What about Genesis? What about creation? Christ created the world. It's all Christ. Christ is on every page of this book. I'm feeling better now, Chad. 
I'm getting revved up here. Okay? Let every person be subjected to the governing authority. And by the way, who was, who was in charge when Paul was writing this? Nero. One of the great right-wing Republicans of all time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, an absolute reprobate. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority is opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Was there ever a time where, you remember, where authority was opposed? Remember any time in Acts when they opposed authority? They told them not to preach in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? They went out and preached in the name of Jesus. See, you obey authority until authority tells you to violate the specific word of God. Does a uh, husband have authority over his wife, according to the scriptures? Yes. If he uh, brings home a porno videotape, sticks it in and says, honey, I want you to watch this with me, should she submit to his authority? No, because you never follow authority into sin. Never. You know, he wants to take the equity in the house and go to Vegas and let it all ride? No. No. Uh -uh. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. What if? government. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Do you see the function of government there? Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, so, let's go back to uh, Aquinas. Aquinas said, you can have a war that is just if, number one, it's declared by a legitimate authority. Uh, the government of a nation can declare war, and it's legitimate because they're functioning as authority from God. Now, we'll get in this a little bit later because the government could declare war for a wrong reason. Okay? Here's, no, here's the second reason for a just war. The cause must be just. Um, and here he quotes Augustine. A just war is to be described as one that avenges wrongs when a nation or state has to be punished for refusing to make amends for the wrongs inflicted by its subjects or to restore what it, is, what it has seized unjustly. All right, here's the third thing. And I'm going to come back on these deals, okay? Third thing. It must be waged with good intention. All right? Um, I'm blanking. Aquinas said this. I couldn't remember his name. For it may happen that the war is declared by the legitimate authority and for a just cause and yet be rendered unlawful through a wicked intention. Augustine comments here and says, The passion for inflicting harm, the cruel thirst for vengeance, an unpacific and relentless spirit, the fever of revolt, the lust of power, and such like things, all these are rightly condemned in war. In other words, where's my other deal? I have an article here called Saddam's Brain, written by David Brooks that appeared in the uh, Weekly Review, the Weekly Standard. Uh, remarkable article because he talks about the fact that there is a philosophy behind the actions of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein 
was a disciple. Have you heard of the Ba'ath Party that he's a part of? The Ba'ath Party was founded by a man named uh, Mikel Aflac. Uh, he graduated from or attended the University of Sorbonne in Paris. Um, <laughs> not Saddam, but Aflac. Now, don't think of the little duck that goes Aflac, you see. <laughs> Although that's probably appropriate for this guy. Here are some other, um, uh, this guy starts off and he says, when faculty members of the Sorbonne gather to discuss who should get the prize for the most evil alumnus, they probably rehash all the familiar names. Pol Pot, mastermind of the Cambodian genocide. Hmm. Abimael Guzman, leader of Peru's Shining Path guerrilla movement. And Ali Shariat, the intellectual godfather of the Iranian Revolution. But they really should give serious consideration to Mikhail Aflac, who is the mentor of Saddam Hussein. That before. Adolf Hitler. Not that the Arabs are the master race, but that the Aryans, of which Hitler wasn't even one, is the master race. Uh, this guy does a great job of describing the philosophy that Hussein learned from Aflac, and Aflac knew he was not able to put into practice. He didn't have the time. He wouldn't live long enough. So Saddam Hussein was his hand-picked protege. There is a philosophy behind the violence and the wars which Hussein has perpetrated. And they don't fit the criteria of being waged with good intention. You guys still there? Okay. Robert Holmes has written an article called Time for War. Can't lose that. Gosh, I really got to watch the clock here. This is good. He goes back to Augustine. Listen to this. I got to summarize this. Um, you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, if uh, someone hits you in the cheek, turn the cheek, all that. You know, I'm not going to read all that right now, but you recall that. And that seems, see, that seems to be anti-war. That seems to be, all right, just keep that in mind. And let, me, let me read what Augustine said. Um, Augustine had already argued that properly understood, Jesus' teachings did not in all cases call for literal obedience. Okay? Of Jesus' injunction, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, Augustine said, what is here required is not a bodily action, but an inward disposition. The sacred seat of virtue is the heart. And then Augustine went on and used an illustration. He, asked, uh, he, he used this illustration. If you see a man striking a boy and another man holding a boy, the first case seems bad. The man is striking the boy. Yet a man, the man could be a father who has an incorrigible son, who is disciplining his son. The outward expression is somewhat harsh, but the inward heart is expressing the love of God. Discipline your son while there is hope. Follow that? See? So you just look upon that and say, oh, that's bad. Well, maybe it's not bad because the guy might be needing to take extreme measures to try and save this kid. He goes on and says, 
the man holding the boy may be a pedophile. You say, he's a loving man, when in actuality, he's not a loving man, he's a man not with love in his heart, but with evil in his heart. So Augustine says, because God judges the soul, the ultimate question is not what the man does, but with what mind and will he does it. Make sense? So that goes back to the issue of right intention, okay, when it comes to war. All right, I got to move. Here's another guy. I don't know where I found all these guys, but uh, I had fun. This is a guy named uh, Keith Pavlicek, all right, an Irish guy. That was a joke. <laughs> this is called Just War Principles and Counterterrorism. He goes back to Aquinas, and uh, he says the, the teachings of, of, of Aquinas, for all intents and purposes, was adopted by the Reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, etc., as well as the early modern Protestant and Catholic natural law theorists. Thomas held that the three requirements are necessary to morally justify the result of force. Number one, legitimate authority. We just looked at that. This is from Augustine. Just cause and right intention. All right, now catch this. Right intention negatively means that war should not be undertaken with the lust for battle, personal glory, bloodlust. Who would that be? Saddam Hussein. That would be Hitler. That would be Stalin. Stalin uh, starved seven or eight million peasants in Russia, plus all the thousands and, and hundreds of thousands that he slaughtered. Okay? So that's wrong intention. Positively, right intention insists that the aim is to bring about peace, not a utopian peace, but a tranquility of order. All right, now, James Turner Johnson written an article called In Response to Terror. He wrote this before 9-11, interestingly enough. And he too quotes Thomas Aquinas. He says, but Thomas also brought into focus a specific concern of his own time, one raised today by the phenomenon of terrorism, the obligation of every sovereign authority to curb and punish lawless people who strike at the order, justice, and peace that are the core purpose of community, political community. Terrorism, by its nature, aims to undermine and erode these goods and thus attacks all people who benefit from them. While the tradition has allowed for the possibility of a war between two states, seeming, because of the complexity of the issues involved, to be just, the kind of violence we call today, we today call terrorism, is evil in its very nature because it attacks the foundations of community itself. The authority to use force to curb and punish terrorism is thus the same authority that seeks to protect the goods of the political order as such. There is no justice in terrorism, only injustice. Is this making sense to you? Positively, the just war requirement of right intention historically meant that use of military force should aim at restoring or creating a just peace. In other words, the purpose is to establish peace. How to conceive and bring about such a peace is indeed the greatest challenge for a policy against terrorism. So terrorism is seeking to undermine peace. The purpose of a just war would be to establish peace. There's a concept in just war, and there's going to be a quiz on this, guys. I can't. I'll get that later. 
there's a concept called proportionality. Okay? This is Hugh Gibbons. The principle of proportionality is embedded in almost every national legal system and underlies the international legal order. He quotes a guy named Horace Fisher. Proportionality has the same function in international law as in domestic law. It requires the agency doing the coercing, court, police, army, to allocate coercion in proportion to the wrong that is being remedied. The principle is bedrock in the Geneva Conventions of August 12, 1947, to which 189 nations are parties. In other words, proportionality means that the consequences inflicted are proportionate to the injustice that was done. Make sense? Think this through. Proportionality came up in a different way in the Gulf War over the legitimacy of an Allied invasion of Iraq or an attempt to kill Saddam Hussein. What were the Allies' actions to be proportional to Hussein's invasion of Kuwait or Hussein's behavior as a leader who was mindless of his duties under law? Did the recovery of Kuwait restore proportionality? Great question. I would submit to you it didn't. Uh, on the History Channel the other night, I, I saw a special on the Gulf War. And one of the things that was pointed out is that as we had the, the what do they call those guys, the Republican Guard, we had them on the run, we had them cut off. Colin Powell stepped up to President Bush and he said, we need to end it here. I would submit to you that proportionality did not take place. When you consider Saddam had gassed his own people, when you consider um, what he had done to the, to, the, to the Kurds, when you consider what he had done to Kuwait, when you considered what he had done with all those oil wells, all the things he had done, proportionality did not take place. I would submit to you, personally, that was a feminized response. So here we are, 10, 11, 12 years later, and what are we having to do? We're having to go back in and take care of proportionality. Isn't this wild stuff? See, we're too busy during the week. We're trying to make a living. We don't have time to think about this stuff. But there are guys that can't hold a real job who do think about it. <laughs> See, there are guys that, that, that can't make welds, but they, think around, they sit around and think about this stuff. And see, they come in handy when you hit these issues. There are different ministries. There are different places in the body of Christ. John Piper. Um, I found this this morning, and it was just post. I've been working on this for two weeks. I got to be honest with you guys. I was so glad it iced over last week because I still I I I've been working on this, but I didn't have it the way I wanted it. And uh, so it turns out we didn't meet. So I was studying all week, and I found this this morning. Uh, really, if I had found this two weeks ago, I would have stopped studying because he's got it all right here. It's phenomenal stuff. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go at least 10 more minutes here. You guys handle that? Because this guy nails it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here's the first question. Is it wrong to go to war? And he talks about September 11th and the terrorism and all that. You know, again, it brings up the question, how do Christians view war? Uh, especially when Jesus said this, Matthew 5. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. For whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. 
Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how in the world can you ever go to war? Piper says, does Jesus' teach, does Jesus's teaching that we should turn the other cheek and love our enemies mean that it is always wrong to go to war? Should the world have turned the other cheek to Hitler and tried to love him into surrender? When Osama bin Laden ordered the attack on the World Trade Center, should the U.S. have responded by sending him the Sears Tower as well? And does Jesus allow a place for both loving our enemies and yet in certain situations using force to restrain life-threatening wickedness? And he talks about the just war theory. Um, and he's going to give several principles here. Here's number one. All right? Pacifism is harmful. That's the first one. Pacifism is harmful. Now, there is a Christian strain of pacifists. Mennonites are pacifists and some of the other uh, groups in that tradition. Uh, the Amish are, pass uh, are, are pacifists. Pacifist. Listen to what Piper says. Pacifism is harmful. To let someone murder when it is in your power to stop them is completely contrary to our moral sentiments. If Hitler is on the move and seeking to bind the world in tyranny and destroy entire ethnic groups, it would seem very clearly wrong not to oppose him with force. It is true that war itself is harmful and tragic, but pacifism will result in even more harm to the world because it would give wicked people virtually free reign. That's all that needs to be said there. At some point, you have to stand up and stop wickedness because of God's character. Okay? All right. Here's number two. Consistent pacifism would have to eliminate the police and not just the military. In fact, if we were to conclude that governments, and I'm quoting here from Piper, okay, just so you know. If we were to conclude that government should always turn the other cheek and never resist evil, then we would be logically committing ourselves to getting rid of not only the armed forces, but also the police force and criminal justice system. For police officers arrest criminals using force against them if necessary and put them in jail. Does Jesus intend his command to turn the other cheek to apply to the police? Surely not as their primary way of responding to evil. God does not want evil to run about in our society unchecked. That would be Romans 13. They have the right to bear the sword. If one accepts the legitimacy of police using force in some instances, there can be no objection to the military using force in some instances. Luke, here's, here's the next principle. Luke 3.14 allows military service. We already dealt with that. Remember when the soldiers came up to John the Baptist? He didn't rebuke them and say, get out of the army. He didn't say that. Here's number four. John 18.36 acknowledges the right of the sword to earthly kingdoms. I'll let you look that up later. John 18.36. Here's his fifth principle. Romans 13, verses 3 to 4, grants governments the right to use force to restrain and punish evil. We've looked at Romans 13. Now, I'm going to read one paragraph out of here. that goes back to right intentions. He says, governments, of course, do not have the right to use force for any purpose whatsoever. They do not have the right to use force in order to lord it over their citizens and impose unnecessary restraints upon freedom. There are two purposes for which this text says the government is justified in using force, the restraint of evil and the punishment of evil. The purpose of force is not just to prevent further evil from happening, but to punish evil acts by bringing the perpetrators to justice. 
Government is acting as a minister of God when it serves as an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Next principle. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 confirms the teaching of Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 confirms the teaching of Romans 13, 3 and 4. Here's the next principle. Is it right for Christians to fight in a war? Since the scriptures teach that it is right for a nation to engage in a just war, it follows it is therefore right for a Christian to fight in such a war. Some have argued that non-Christians may fight in wars, but believers may not, but this distinction is not found in scripture. Enough on that. Next principle. Church and state must be distinguished. Now, when you hear that, don't think of it in the way that the ACLU does it, because they've screwed it up. Listen to what Piper says. It's important, however, to remember there is a distinction here between church and state. The Christian fights in a war not as an ambassador of the church or on behalf of the church, but as an ambassador of his country. The church is not to use violence, John 18.36, but the government at times may. He goes into a further discussion. I don't have time to deal with Nine. What about turning the other cheek? i got to read this, okay? Because this gets down to the heart of the matter. What now are we to make of Jesus' radical commands in Matthew 5? Do not resist him who is evil. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. First, we need to clarify what the problem is not. The problem is not that Jesus appears to be telling us to lie down and let evil overtake us. That is clearly not what he is saying. Instead, he is telling us what it looks like not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We've all seen the wisdom of Jesus' words here in our everyday lives. Much of the time, the most effective way to overcome evil is, is by not resisting. If someone says a mean word, it's far more effective to respond with kindness than with another mean word in return. If someone tries wrongly to cut you off on the freeway, it's usually best just to let them do it. If we would learn these principles, our lives would be much more peaceful, and ironically, we, we would be vindicated more often. Stay with me. So the problem is not that it looks as though Jesus is telling us to let evil steamroll over us. The problem is that it looks like Jesus is telling us that the only way we should ever seek to, come, to overcome evil is by letting it go and responding with kindness. It looks as though he leaves no place for using force and resisting evil. Would you agree with that? I'd agree with it just from reading the text. Part of the answer to this difficulty lies in understanding the hyperbolic. Where does that come from? Hyperbole. What's hyperbole? It's exaggeration for effect. Okay? I'm starting to lose some of you guys. What he's saying is, is that Jesus was using hyperbole for an effect. Now catch this. There's a, there's a hyperbolic nature in much of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think that Jesus is telling us never to respond to evil with force, such as in self-defense, or always to literally turn the other cheek when we are slapped any more than his command later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 6, means that we should only pray when we are completely alone, or his command in 529 means that some should literally gouge out their eyes. Do you think that's what Jesus meant? If your eye offends you, gouge it out? I don't think so. He was using hyperbole. Jesus himself drove the thieves away from the temple with a whip. That's John 2. And Paul at times insisted on his rights as Roman citizen. Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate what our primary disposition and attitude should be, not to say that we should literally give in to every attempt to do evil against us. 
That's part of the answer. The main part of the answer lies in remembering that Jesus is speaking primarily to individuals. He is not mainly addressing governments here, but is primarily speaking at the personal level. This text then shows what an individual's primary response to evil should be, which is to turn the other cheek. While the other text we have seen, Romans 13, shows that government's God-given responsibility is to punish those who commit civil crimes. So let me ask you something. I know a guy whose sister was stalked by a guy, murdered, and they found her body in a dumpster. He's a believer. His father's a believer. Should they then go out and hunt this guy down and seek revenge? No. But should the government do that? Yes. In other words, there are various spheres of life. God has willed that some spheres include responsibilities that are not necessarily included in other spheres. That, Yeah, well, again, he was talking about the heart. The attitude, the heart. It goes back to what um, uh, Augustine was saying. You know, a guy can be um, loving a child and holding a child. It looks good, but it's not good. It's dirty. See, because the heart. You, you can be disciplining your son. Someone say, oh, that's harsh. You know, actually it's imbalanced. Because the father knows the situation and knows in this situation that some stern measures need to be taken to try and save this boy's life. All goes down to the heart. Proper action. But see, the action can be misinterpreted, even though the heart is right. And see, God knows the heart. Where can we find that Piper? The Piper thing, go to desiringgod.org. O-R-G. Desiringgod.org. O-R-G. Um, I can give you the whole address right here. Graham. On, on the uh, insight.org website, under schools for the movie, we have an article of the discovery that one that's exactly against the King Pinkerton. Great. Okay. Before it, I can turn it off. All right. There are a couple of other articles, too, along the same line. Okay. Great. Did you guys get that at insight? Insight.org. Yeah, Insight for Living. But it's just, it's just insight.org. Okay? That makes sense? All right. You guys weren't expecting this tonight, were you? Were you? We've got a Marine recruiter out in the hall. <laughs> Back here and then here. Yeah. What's the name of the Piper article? Um, you know what? Gosh, they, they really didn't. It was just posted today. The title is, uh, I'll tell you what I did. Here's how you get that. Go to Desiring God, all right? There'll be a search engine. Type in Just War. I mean, right on the home page. If you start, if you go anywhere else, you're going to get screwed up. But on that first search engine, hit Just War. It's the first article that comes up. Okay? Right here, Phil. Yeah. And the guys in here are. Yeah. But it's not 
Right. in our government. Right. You know, I'm almost at the point where I'm with David where I'm just asking God literally to take these guys out. Yeah. Leaders. I really sure. Am. I mean, I was about the, the whole thing like, Lord, thank God, I'm supposed to love these guys. I said, no, I'm not. I, yeah. I, I want to go right to the Psalms and, and right to what David was asking. I said, rip their throats. Yeah, they're imprecatory Psalms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some, guy, some guy asked me He didn't like that, by the way. But go ahead. I've had been, you know, I, I, I say that verbally, and yeah. I, even among Christians, yeah. I'm, I, you know, oh man, what's wrong with you? Or you're too. Like, you're not you're, loving. You're, or you're too, yeah, you're not loving. You're too much of a hawk. And I have a real tough time right. with the saying, right. you know, love the sinner but hate the sin. Right. I have a tough time with that. Because sure. I think sometimes you don't do that. I'm sorry, right. the sinner needs to be destroyed and yeah. Right. Sure. You're all right, Phil. And see, you're fine. Understand this. Understand this. Most evangelical churches, if, let, let's, let's put it this way. Most evangelical churches would not want any of the Old Testament prophets in their church. They would not want them. Because they're intolerant and they're not loving. All right, now, we have to be careful. And, and listen, I share your, your um, you know, I, I can get a little fervor going myself. Maybe you picked that up. Um, not tonight. I was cool and calm and totally under control. Um, I'm, I'm looking for a verse. Um, let's go to this guy. I got two guys right here. And then I'll look up the verse. Go ahead. Would the appropriate prayer then be strike them and save them so they will not submit and yeah. out of the way? Yeah, I, I think that's good. I think, um, gosh, I, I think how we have to pray, I think how we have to pray is, Lord, um, thank you that you're sovereign. You raise up rulers and you set them down. These godless rulers you've raised up. Uh, John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Hey, now, let's say this, guys. Let's say this. We, we slaughter how many, how many babies a year? See, we've been praying for little Kate. Uh, hey, on the other floor of that hospital, they're taking 24-week-old unborn babies. And they're cutting them up. Now... Thank God we're moving on this partial birth abortion thing. You know, righteousness exalts a nation. Um, I think we all breathe a sigh of relief because we have Bush in the White House after eight years of a reprobate. Because that's what he was. Um, so do we, do we pray for these guys? It's hard to pray for them. It's easier to pray for Bush than to pray for Clinton. But, you know, I'd pray for Clinton that... that that he would he would repent of his sin and realize he can't spend God, and and that God would uh, be gracious to him and that he would open his eyes and ears to the truth of the gospel. Um, but God raises up rulers and He sets them down. So He's raised up these wicked rulers, and He's why why did He raise up Sambalat and Tobiah? I don't know. But you know what? That's where you got to just say, God, you're sovereign. You're calling the shots here. 
know. So we got to trust him. Yes, sir. My church. Yeah. Right, yeah. So when you don't vote, and we have the opportunity here to vote. So if, uh, if, if you don't vote, then, you know, you're just, you don't have much to say. Yes, sir, back in the corner. Say that again. I heard her. I heard Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah. Which was horrible. And it was. But how many? How many millions of lives did that save? How many American soldiers were saved? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Good point. That's right. No. That's right. Yeah, in fact, he said, the soldier said to Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house to heal because I'm a man under authority and you just say the word. And Jesus didn't say, well, you get out from under that authority. Never mentioned it. Good point. Great point. So is it frustrating, Phil? Is it frustrating living in this culture? Sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where are you right now? Sure. And you know, you talk about the abortion, and here we are fighting it for how many years? Right. And yeah. it's just like sure. we're just against this wall. And right. Oh man. Sure. It's so frustrating. But as frustrating as it is, you know, God is on His throne, and and. When, when it gets hope, God loves to break into situations that are hopeless. He does. Right? I mean, that's the whole Old Testament. They get in these hopeless jams, and there's no way out, and God prepares, and God makes a way. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what. In the history of Judah, uh, they had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And, and because of the immorality of the nation, you see. And, but God is so gracious, and God is so kind, that you'd see a good king here and there. You'd see a Josiah. Hey, I'm grateful we have a president. I, I wish Bush was tougher on the homosexual issue. I'm just telling you. But I'll tell you, I'm so glad we have a president that reads Oswald Chambers every morning. You know? Aren't you? That reads the scriptures every morning. We got a reprieve. And God's at work. And God's sovereign. Uh, what do we take out of this? Uh, other than we go out and enlist. <laughs> I think what we do is we pray. I think we need to be praying for President Bush. Uh, not once a day. I think throughout the day, as he comes to mind, you pray for him. Because he's getting incredible heat, as you know. Uh, and sometimes we get overwhelmed, but there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God's got his people. We're salt, we're light. God's got a plan, and the plan will be realized. Are you guys encouraged? There's a biblical basis. Uh, there's a biblical basis for what's going on. And, uh, and God honors righteousness. And God honors right intent. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the we get frustrated, Lord, because we see these foolish people in government. Uh, quite, quite frankly, they're traitors. 
and and it just it it just incenses us. Um, I, I saw a picture of two demonstrators holding a sign today saying, "I wish I was French." And, and Lord, we, we see that and we, and we just get livid. Um, Father, we, we, we say this to you. Uh, we need to be repentant people. We've all fallen short of your glory. Our nation has. Our nation has grievously wronged you. We, we push homosexuality as a normal thing, and young children are being sucked into this uh, wicked lifestyle that destroys human beings made in your image. It's not right, and it's not good. Yet we're told that it is. We take the lives of countless children. And, and Lord, you will not let that go by without dealing with us. But we thank you, Lord, that we seem to have a reprieve. We, we thank you, Lord, that we're, we're seeing a, a turn towards you in our government. And Lord, we don't trust in government, we trust in you. We ask, Lord, that your work would be accomplished. We ask that your purposes would be achieved. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord uh, Lord, you haven't been our God for a while. On our coins you have, but we mock you, we ridicule you in our universities. Uh, we're taking your name out of our pledge. Uh, we, we, we don't want to uh, adhere to your truth. But there's a remnant who loves you and who would die for you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would encourage us. And Lord, we're mindful that throughout history you've always taken care of your people. Lord, give us opportunities to stand for you. Give us opportunities to declare your word. We pray for our president, giving great wisdom, helping to withstand the pressure, helping to withstand the heat. Help him, Lord, to only be concerned about pleasing you. Help him not to be concerned about a second term. Help him to be concerned about your holiness and your righteousness and your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see ya. Yes, sir.